0: Okay, this morning we're going to be looking at several passages of Scripture uh, in your Bibles. So get your Bibles ready as we look at uh, what the Scriptures say about a very controversial doctrine that I would bring forth to you this morning. And I've been continuing to uh, embark on preaching a series of messages on the doctrines of grace uh, in time past, it has been historically referred to as the Five Points of Calvinism. And you can refer to my last message on the history of that. And it has received over time some severe attacks and given pretty much a bad name. However, the question that I mentioned last week is that, that we have to raise is is it a biblical doctrine? In other words, can we go to the scripture and make a case for it? Well, these, bi- these doctrines definitely are biblical and they matter deeply and to ask why these should be of interest to us is to ask the question, why is it important to understand what is at the heart of the Christian faith? Now, we're each one of us stands on these five doctrines deeply affects our view of God and man and regeneration and salvation and assurance and the nature of a, the atoning work of Christ. It also affects our worship, our evangelism, and our missions. Somewhere along the way, uh, for the, at least for the English-speaking world, uh, the five points of Calvinism came to be summarized by the acrostic tulip, uh, which is total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and P, perseverance of the saints. And, of course, since that time, uh, some have come up with other ac- acrostics that kind of ruins the uh, the flower garden, at least, and... Um, and they came up with rupep, which means radical corruption, which I dealt with last week. Unconditional election, which doesn't change. all right. And then a limited atonement would be particular redemption. Irresistible grace would be effectual calling. And the perseverance of the saints would be the perseverance of the saints. Now, as we look at these doctrines, uh, you probably already have discovered that when you're reading listening, and learning the Word of God, not everything sits easy with your soul. Some things are hard to understand. And the reason for this is that we are being exposed to the mind of God when we're reading Scripture. We are discovering treasure and learning things that will never, ever be born in the minds of mortal men. So then when God reveals his mind to us, when he reveals his will to us, when he reveals how he actually did something, it does not always come as a welcome surprise. At least to all believers at the same time. Some believers wrestle and struggle with the word of God. I have. I know that you have. And at some points have affectionately embraced truth in the Word of God when we came to hard things. But at other times, we didn't know what to do with it. We didn't know how to understand it. We, don't know how, we, didn't, we didn't know how to wrap our mind around it. And some even come to the place where they despise it and say, how can God do such a thing? There is one particular doctrine that has been wrestled with maybe more than any other doctrine and it's the doctrine of divine election. To relate to you what I mean, let me quote from a theologian, Arthur Pink, who said this about the doctrine, no doctrine is so detested by proud human nature as this one, election, which making nothing of the creature and everything of the creator, yea, at no other point, is the enmity of the carnal mind so blatantly and hotly evident when the doctrine of unconditional election is taught. And he says that when he was preaching in different places, Arthur Pink, he would say, I'm going to speak on one of the most hated doctrines of the Bible, namely the doctrine of sovereign election. But I say to you this morning, um, will we fully understand this truth? No. No. But I tell you this, we must come to terms with this doctrine in one way or another. And here's some advice. Don't fight against it. Instead, submit to the wisdom of God because the judge of all the earth shall do and always does what is right. And I pray that everyone here will come to understand and love this doctrine. When you do, it will inform every thought and everything you do. One of the old creeds of the church hammered out a pretty clear definition of this doctrine and it was as follows that the definition of the doctrine of election is that God saves from corruption and damnation those whom he has chosen from the foundation of the world not for any disposition faith or holiness that he foresaw in them, but of his mere mercy in Christ Jesus' Son passing by all the rest according to the rehensible reason of his own free will and justice. All right, in simple terms, God chooses certain people for salvation. Let me pray. Lord, this morning as we look at this doctrine in the Word of God, Lord, challenge our heart today because we know this doctrine is a doctrine that exalts God to his his highest place and it humbles man to his lowest place. But Lord, give us an understanding from your Word that this is what you've done. And even though, Lord, we must wrestle with it and we may not fully understand it, Lord, allow us to submit to it because you are our God of great mercy and and truth. And so, Lord, let us this morning see in Scripture this truth. Humble us by it and use us to be able to care for the lost because we know, Lord, because you have chosen there, the gospel must go to those people so they can believe. And I help us to be faithful witnesses in this respect. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there's another definition, uh, a little bit more detailed, of an unconditional election, and it's this that God's choice of certain individuals to salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely on his sovereign will. His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen response or obedience on their part, such as faith or repentance. On the contrary, God gives faith and repentance to each individual he selected. These acts are a result, not the cause of God's choice. Election Therefore, was not determined or conditioned on any virtuous quality or act foreseen in man. Those whom God sovereignly elected, he brings through the power of the Holy Spirit to a willing acceptance of Christ. Thus, God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation. Now, one passage that you can look at very quickly that contains this truth is Acts sixteen fourteen, And this is an example of what God does. But I want you to notice the wording in Acts 16 and verse number 14. This is talking about the woman, Lydia, who was a businesswoman. And it says of her that she was a worshiper of God, meaning at that time she worshipped according to the Jewish faith. And it says in Acts 16, 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now, in that passage of scripture, very simply, God opened her heart and he allowed her to respond the things that were spoken of by the apostle Paul that's just a simple way of understanding this truth that God is involved in bringing people to faith and uh, repentance and so it is God who is the cause of salvation now with that text in mind turn your bibles over to 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 because i want to look at some things concerning election before we look at some particular passages of scriptures that mention the word itself and the first thing is really, what is the destination of election? If God's going to choose people for salvation, where does that lead? Well, because we are chosen by God, we have been called to a certain mandate, all those who would believe. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 1 and 2, here are some things. The first thing we've been called to... For those who are chosen is that we're called to be aliens. In verse number one, it says, "Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to who, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are notice chosen." All right, so that is the context there that these were chosen by God for a certain task, for a certain mandate. And the first thing was they were called to be aliens, meaning that when God calls his people, they are temporary residents in this world. God's chosen should quickly realize that they are visiting strangers in a place that is not their home. We are actually, uh, we are actually aliens and strangers in the world. That's the first thing. The second thing is that they have an alien nationality, all right? The term for alien really is, means sojourner or stranger. An alien is one who lives alongside of sojourners. The word is used of those who are temporary residents, not permanent settlers in the land. Those who have a deep attachment and a higher allegiance To another sphere. Of course, that allegiance would be the kingdom of God. All right? In other words, Philippians tells us that we are citizens of another kingdom, that our mandate then is to live according to a higher standard, keeping in mind our alien nationality and our temporary residency on this earth. We're only here for a short time. See, our higher allegiance is that. those who are chosen have a citizenship in heaven and we are only for a short period of time here on earth and what we're we to do, we're to preach the gospel for it says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not at home while we remain here Christians are waiting to be fitted and transformed into our eternal state. Philippians again says that whom will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So here we are. We are then an alien society, those who are chosen, living within a society members of the kingdom of God but aliens here on earth we really don't belong here our citizenship is in heaven we are governed by the word of God by the living God we are different because we obey a higher authority which is God himself in fact if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11 it says that this, but beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So see, just living here in this world as the chosen, that we are in a world, but we are not of the world, and we are given the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, in the scripture, it says here in First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, that we are uh, scattered, all right? These people were scattered. We are also scattered throughout all the earth for what reason to be ambassadors? In other words, we Christians are aliens to this world and have been called by Christ to bring the Word of God, the gospel, to a world steeped in spiritual darkness. And that is, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, We are not merely chosen for heaven. We are chosen for earth. The Lord doesn't save us and just take us immediately to heaven. He leaves us here. So the destination of the elect while they are on earth is to move through this earth while we're demonstrating an alien lifestyle with the goal to proclaim the gospel and to live out our ambassadorship as citizens of another realm, and that realm is the kingdom of heaven in which we are heading. So we have a mandate while we're here as the elect. Now, what is the, 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 the delineation of election? Well, in verse number 2 of 1 Peter chapter 1, it is this. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So, see, the the delineation of election is that, in other words, how are we elect? What is the source of our election? Well, Christians are first, are elect first according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. See, election is is not based on God's foreknowledge of our faith. People who agree that God predestines some to be saved, but they will say that he does this by looking into the future and seeing that they will believe in Christ and those who will not, and then based on foreknowledge of that person's faith, he elects them. If they do not Believe, he does not elect them. You see, some believe that the ultimate reason why some are saved and some are not lies within people themselves, not with God. All that God does in his predestinating work is to give confirmation to the decision he knows people will make on their own. In other words, God's choice Follows man's choice. But, see, God's foreknowledge is, is not for any good or nobility or wisdom or power or choice or seeking he foresees in anyone. In other words, that this view actually destroys the meaning of foreknowledge. Understand this. In the sovereignty of God, the only things that can be foreknown are those that are already predestined. And this means that election must be prior to faith, so it's foreknowledge really of persons, not of facts. It is a personal relational knowledge, a special love, which is spoken of in this in the word of God, and in this particular word also that God thought of certain people in a saving relationship to himself in the sense that he knew them long ago. Then what does foreknowledge really mean? Well, foreknowledge, the word prognosco, means knowing beforehand. God's foreknowledge is much more than knowing what will happen in the future. It includes his effective choice in the past. For example, this word is used in another passage of Scripture in reference to Jesus Christ. And if you ask yourself, what does it mean that Christ was foreknown? Well, it says this in Acts. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. See, the father did not look into the future and see that Jesus would be a good candidate for the Messiah and then chose him. No, Jesus dying on the cross for sinners for all those who receive him as Lord and Savior was determined completely before the foundation of the world. That means that God sets the boundaries for the plan. It's a, the plan of salvation is a predetermined plan. In the historical book of Acts, Paul was preaching a message in Acts chapter 17, and he said this in verse number 26, he says, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And then it says this, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation... So in other words, God predetermines when we're going to live, where we're going to live. Why does he do that? Because he's God. All right? And also, it's a it's also a pre- foreknowledge means a predetermined love relationship. Foreknowledge of God. You see, foreknowledge has wrapped up in it a meaning which includes intimacy. Foreknowledge means that God chooses us for intimacy. That's why when we read the Gospel of John, what do we read? We read passages, passages like this. I am a good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And then 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 19, it says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. God knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. In other words, God knows us. When people know God in Scripture or when God knows them, it is a personal knowledge that involves a saving, intimate, ongoing relationship. And consider what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, in verse 29, he said this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So the word know or foreknew actually indicates God's choice. The text says that God foreknew beforehand to whom he would extend the grace of salvation. Therefore, foreknow is best understood to mean those whom he long ago thought of in a saving relationship to himself. As one recent translation expressed it, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his Son. So see, Christians are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Nothing based on what man would do, but based on everything God predetermined. Secondly, Christians are elect secondly by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. If you look right there in 1 Peter, in verse 2, chapter 1, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. In other words, that it was by what the Spirit of God would do, and the sanctifying means that the Spirit of God would set us apart, that the Holy Spirit produces sanctification, and the Holy Spirit then sets those apart. Now, Last week, I ended with a passage of Scripture that I'd like you to turn there. Keep your hand in 1 Peter, but turn back to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and verse number 44, because in that passage, it says something very important that I want you to see, because in this passage, there's three important words that are used About God the Father and what He does to draw His children. And it says in John chapter six and verse number forty four, if you're there in your Bibles, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now in that passage of Scripture there are three words. The first thing word is can. No one can come. Now, the, that's what they call a negative absolute, and that word can refers to ability. In other words, in our text is saying, no one has the ability to come to Christ. A second word he uses is the word unless. This word unless means there must be a prerequisite or a necessary condition that must be met before someone has the ability to come to Christ. Something has to happen before anyone can come. It is saying none of us has the natural ability to come to Christ unless a necessary condition is met, unless God does something, unless the Father gives it to him. And there is another word in this this passage that is important. It says that... In verse 40, unless sent me draws him, that word draw. All right? There is another term in this verse that always also needs our attention. And of course, it is the word draw. Now, this word draw in other places in, in Scripture means to drag or to pull. For example, let me just give you some examples. James, you do have to turn there. But listen, James chapter 2, verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. It is not the rich who oppose you and personally drag you into court. Now, some people have determined that this word draw can mean to woo somebody. Well, you don't woo somebody into court. You drag somebody into court, right? And then in Acts chapter 8, but Saul began... Uh, ravaging the church, entering after, house after house and dragging men off and wi- wi- men and women off, and he would put them in prison. Now that we can't use the word woo or entice them to come with him, but the word drag. They had dragged them out of their houses. And then in Acts 17, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city of authority, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. He didn't woo them or entice them to go. Uh, He actually had to drag them before the magistrates. And then in John chapter 6, in verse 65 in the passage we're looking at, uh, in the text we're looking at, he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one, verse 65, can come to me unless he has, it has been granted to him from the Father. So in other words, the word draw is used by one group to mean to woo or to entice and of course, God's wooing can be resisted, but it also can mean, which I believe it does mean, it means to drag. Now, there's a theological dictionary that defines this word, and it's a good definition of this word, and it means to compel by irresistible force. Another verse of Scripture well-known to all who do evangelism is John 3, verse number 3, and it says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the important question at this point is this, what has to happen before someone can see the kingdom of God? Well, they have to be born again, right? before they can see the kingdom of God. What is the prerequisite for entering the kingdom of God? Well, the prerequisite for entering the kingdom of God is regeneration or being born again is a prerequisite. Um, Actually, regeneration is a prerequisite. It, It is the necessary condition for seeing and entering the kingdom of God. See, now the problem is this, when we think about this particular truth, that what I mentioned last week, semi-Pelagianism has people choosing Christ or cooperating with God's grace, and of course another term used at this point is the term uh, provenient grace. Have you ever heard that term before? That means a doctrine advanced in the in uh, the early stages of Arminianism, uh, teaching that there was bestowed upon our depraved natures an ability which enables man to cooperate with God concerning salvation. So it's not just God doing the work, it's man and God doing the work. And so what happens is that uh, this is before the Holy Spirit is in them. This is before they're born again. Arminianism has people not yet born again, seeing and choosing the kingdom of God. Yet the word of God tells us that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what is the from last week, what is the, the truth about this whole position about the total depravity of man? The truth is this, that regeneration. Being born again must precede faith. It must come before someone has faith in Christ. Just like it says in Ephesians chapter 2, even when we were dead in our transgressions, what does it say? He made us alive together with Christ. So again, in our deadness, we have to be made alive so we can be saved for then it says by grace you have been saved in other words god himself supplies the necessary condition to come to jesus by grace alone and what is that necessary condition it's the holy spirit the holy spirit must make us alive he must set us apart and why is that you know why because the flesh profits nothing It profits absolutely nothing. John 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then Paul again to the Romans, he says, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, for the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It is not subject, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, he says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't even belong to Christ. So not only does the spirit of God, is he the necessary condition that provides what we need prior to having faith and repentance that God does, that's the work of God before we have faith and repentance. So the bottom line would say, The necessary condition that must be satisfied before we can come to Christ for salvation is regeneration. That must mean that we're born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, no one can come to Christ. All right, now, there's some difficulties, of course, with this doctrine. Um, If you're listening, if you're beginning to think about this, you're beginning to say to yourself wow this is, this is some hard stuff well there's some delights to this doctrine too if you understand it but what's the first difficulty that comes to your mind why some people have animosity toward this doctrine is because they conclude with the cry that's not fair But let, let me ask you something. Can a person really say God is not fair? Of course, the answer to that question is no. Why? Well, God is not to be measured by human standard. How do we measure whether God is fair or not? If it were possible for God, God's fairness to be measured, who standard would we measure his fairness by? By man's? A fallen creature who loves darkness rather than light? Brethren, we must all come to grips with the bold-faced facts that no one has the right or the capacity to judge whether God is fair or not. Like it says in the Psalms, these things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. And then Paul says to the Romans, even to his surprise, Paul says this in, in Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who can figure out God? Unless God tells us in the word of God what he's done. See as soon as we think we got God figured out he takes a left turn and loses us. But see as long as we stay to the word of God, we must say this is what God has done. This is what God has done. So scripture tells us God is infinitely and perfectly just. In Psalms it tells us righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. See God's God wills that is God is Just. God is fair by nature and character, and therefore He defines justice. He sets the standard, and then that is the standard, and then no one can change the standard. Now, if you're with me, turn back to 1 Peter again, and I want you to notice. Just by this passage again, it says in 1 Peter, verse number 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens throughout Pontus, Galatia, Capposia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So really, you know where where salvation is heading? Salvation is heading is to obey Christ. I'm not going to look at that this morning. So see, what we have before us in this text is that we we have a Jew and Gentile audience. This audience, they were aliens, meaning that they lived in a hostile society. Secondly, they were scattered. They were not living in one place as a united, protected community. They were living without permanent residence all over the place. And then this word, they were chosen. They were, it's the word elect in the Greek. We derive the word from the term eclectic which means taking from different places and pulled together. Now, I want you to see that their understanding of their election by God made all the difference in their present condition and outlook and their future. That is why if you search the New Testament, you'll find an abundance of texts relating to God's chosen all over the place. And if you'd like to look at some of those, let's look at some of those right now because I want you to see it in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 22 to 24, it was Jesus who was speaking here, and it says in verse number 22 of chapter 24, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short, then, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And then in Luke chapter 18, verse 7, now it says, Will God. Will not God bring about justice for the elect who cried to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? And then again in Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse number 33, which we like to quote this passage a lot, it says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And then in Colossians no need to turn there, so as those who have been chosen of God. And then 2 Timothy 2.10, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with an eternal glory. And then in Titus 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God. So what is the definition of election? Well, it's it's this, it's God picked, God called out, God selected, God chose certain people to be saved. Therefore, it is the chosen that are saved. And let it be plainly said that salvation did not originate with the will of man, but with the will of God, that were it were not so, none would be saved or could be saved for the result of the fall, man lost all desire and will for that which is good concerning God, and also that even the elect themselves have to to be made willing. For it says in Acts, when the Gentiles heard this, that's the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the Greek word appointed really means to uh, station or to appoint to a certain position or lot. That the Heavenly Father does the choosing. God selects those who will be saved. Then he gives as a bride to his son. John 17, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on those whom you have given me that they are yours. And of course, the maybe the most common passages that we deal with when it comes to election is what I've been look what I was looking at in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 and 5 just as he chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will now if you notice in that passage There he chose us in him. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then, of course, Paul tells the Thessalonian church, knowing brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you. And again, he says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because he has chosen you. From the, found, from the beginning for salvation through the sanctify, sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So see, the difficulty is, the question is, is God fair? Well, we have to conclude nobody can judge whether God is fair. only we can do is go to Scripture and say, this is what God has done, and what God does is fair, according to his standard. I can't wrap my mind around that, but I know it's the truth. But there's a second difficulty that I want to leave with you that people find with this doctrine. They say, if this is all of God, then why are human beings still responsible? Another way of phrasing the question is, how can then God find fault with those who do not believe? But I want to remind everyone here that everyone doesn't believe. Everyone is heading for hell. Everyone is. Now, at this point, I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Now, I wish I could do the whole chapter, but I can't. I just want to focus your attention on a couple places in Romans chapter nine, specifically verse 20 and 20, uh, verse 20 and 20 to 22. Look at verse number 19. Well, in verse number 18, when it was talking about Pharaoh, it says in verse 18 of Romans 9, so then he's, he has mercy on whom he, has, he desires and he hardens whom he desires. That's God. Verse number 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Verse 20, on the contrary... On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or verse 21, or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Verse 22, for what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, To make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And verse 23, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, in these passages here, in verse 21, that the potter, which is God, has a right to make vessels for honorable use and vessels for common use. Vessels for honorable use that, you, that are made beautiful and are put on the mantle for everybody to see, and vessels for common use are the vessels that are used for garbage. God has every right to do that. But I want you to notice that in this passage of Scripture, Uh, Specifically, verse number 22, that the vessels of wrath, they are prepared, already prepared for wrath. In this passage, God does not take an active role because the passage uses actually a passive verb. It doesn't say God made vessels of wrath, but that he endured them with much patience. In verse 22, what if although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. See, these vessels have been prepared unto wrath as a result of sin. So in other words, everybody is under the wrath of God. Everyone is heading for hell. All sinners are heading there. So that means that reprobation in this passage is passive in reprobation, God passively allows some to receive the just punishment they deserve for their sin. But it also says here that God has the right to make vessels of mercy, right? Vessels of mercy are already also prepared for wrath, but in this passage, God is the action. He takes the, not the passive role, but the active role, and the verb here is in the active tense. In other words, God prepared beforehand. He took the active role in preparing them beforehand in verse number 23, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. See, God's able to do this. So election is active, Reprobation is passive. Everybody's heading to hell. Election is God's choosing a group of people out of that mass of people heading to hell for his own glory, as his own people, for his own children. So in election, God actively intervenes to rescue those who deserve destruction. And how does he do that? By the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how he does it. So the bottom line is, according to John MacArthur... Why are people saved? Because God chose them. Why are people condemned to go to hell? Because they refuse to believe and they're left in their sin. They have no chance for, they have no way to rescue themselves. So in other words, in our passage of Scripture, the chosen are the ones God selects before this foundation of the world because God is God. Have you realized that this is the greatest truth that you can know? In other words, this is really a family secret. This is, we don't go out there and preach the gospel. This is not part of preaching the gospel. This is part of understanding what God done after you become a believer. This is a family truth. This is a truth that when God's children hear it, they're, they're going to wrestle with it, but they come to a place where say, they say, God, if you've done this, if this is the way you've done it, then you receive the glory. You're exalted because you're God, and I'm humbled because I'm man. And if you desire to give the gospel to me and you gave me faith and repentance, then I'm truly humbled and grateful that you rescued me from the wrath of God and from my own sin, and I know you've done it now because of your electing love. But that also means, too, and some people have concluded, well, if God does this, then he's going to save who's going to save, then so we don't have to give the gospel, no. We're to be witnesses in the world. We're aliens in a, this world as witnesses to what Christ has done on the cross because that is the only way God's elect will be rescued. If they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they respond to it and believe. See, so the truth should humble us in the dirt and at the same time it should produce such a holy joy in our heart that God showed favor on us. Little old me, God showed favor on me. That should just produce such joy. And once God, once you see this in Scripture, no one can lose their salvation because it's not you who saved yourself. It was God who saved you. Now remember, your salvation leads to holiness. The proof of real salvation is desire for God, a love for God, a change in your whole life towards who God is and what God has done. Not living for yourself, not living for your sin. It's a total change. And like the psalmist says in Psalm 65, how blessed is the one you choose How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you. There it is. It's like the foreknowledge and the love of God coming together that when God chooses and elects people before the foundation of the world, it's so they can be near to God, so they can be God's special people, so they can dwell with God, and we can say God is our God, and we are his people, and that's where the worship comes from. See, this particular doctrine changes everything because it also says in Psalm, we will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. We'll be satisfied with God. So this doctrine is difficult. It could be understood more easily than it can be received. Yet it is thoroughly biblical It is a thoroughly biblical doctrine. It is a family secret. And what is that unconditional election that God selects certain people to be saved and he passes by all the rest? Why does he do that? Because he's God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, this morning I just pray and ask you that you would uh, help us beyond this message to wrestle with and grapple with these truths. Lord, help us to wrap our mind around it. But, Lord, do so in the way that we accept it. Because, Lord, we know that you've done all these things in love. We know, Lord, that when we look at the cross of Christ, we see the demonstration of the love of God. And, Lord, we know, too, that there are those in the world and in our families and on our jobs who don't know you as their Lord and Savior. And, Lord, we don't know the ones that you've chosen, but you do. So, Lord, let us be faithful to bring the gospel to the lost, to those who are under God's wrath because of their sin. And, Lord, let us be faithful to share Christ with them because, Lord, we know where they're heading And we know the only one who could rescue them is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, we ask you because you are the one who provides regeneration to regenerate your people. Grant them faith and repentance that they may come. And I pray, Lord, that they would not only be called but predestined to glory. So while we're aliens in this world, Lord, make us faithful. Help us to realize we're not home. And so let us work for you with all our heart, mind, and soul for the building of your church, for the rescuing of the lost, and also, Lord, for the glory of your name. And I pray this in Christ, Jesus Christ. Amen.